Pray with me. Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I know that you're present here with us. And I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, uh, we are in a sermon series called For All the Saints, and we're looking at um, each week one of the different great saints of the Bible, one of the great leaders of the Bible, uh, and we're looking at what um, made them distinctive, what characteristics uh, are worth reflecting on and hopefully emulating. And today we're looking at John. Now, if you're looking for a characteristic to emulate about John, it's, there are a couple of um, possible things to consider. There's really only one that you'd have to go with, but there are a couple of possibilities to consider. Uh, he was the youngest disciple. He was kind of a hothead, along with his brother James. Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder because they were so sort of volatile. Um, and he was one of Jesus' inner three disciples, along with Peter. Uh, got to experience the transfiguration and all, all sorts of uh, incredible experiences that Jesus uh, used to invest in these particular three to make them leaders of the church. And John was the only disciple who, according to, according to tradition, was not martyred. All of the other disciples died violent early deaths, and John lives a, um, a, a long life, lives to be very old by the time he's... Um, in his old age, he's the only of the first apostles left by, for years and years and years, and he's sort of the, the patriarch of the church at this point, but he doesn't escape persecution. He ends up in exile uh, on a remote island called the island of Patmos, and uh, scholars think that it's from there that he does his writing as an old man. Um, and he, you know, he writes his gospel, he writes his, his three letters. Today we're looking at the first of his letters, um, and he writes the book of Revelation, um, and in that book of Revelation, he opens it in one of the, in this early chapters by greeting those who share in the tribulation, right? Share in persecution, because at this time there was incredible persecution going on of the church. John has lived uh, to see all these other disciples martyred and then also for this, this widespread persecution of the church. And he was not killed by it, but he was put into exile by it. Now, all of that relates back to the one characteristic of John that's really the paramount characteristic, and that is love. John is called the apostle of love. That's how he's popularly known. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple in his own gospel. And so if you're looking at John, it makes sense to look at love. And then, but, but if you contrast the persecution that he experienced as he's writing this letter, he's in exile. He's been kicked out of his home and all, everyone he knows has been, not everyone, but lots and lots of people have been, experienced violence at the hands of the state. Why is the beloved disciple, why is the apostle of love evoking such fierce and violent responses from the world around him? Does that make sense? I mean, why, uh, he, he's the apostle. Who doesn't like love? What's, why are people, you know what I mean? Like, where's the disconnect here? What's going on? So that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at how John talks about love, what he tells us about love. And I want to do first, I want to see how he defines love. And when we do that, we're going to see how love is both a little bit more straightforward than we tend to think about it today. Uh, people often seem to be like, oh, what is love? It's like this mystery. You're not even supposed to know, right? Maybe if you read a novel, you'll get a little insight of maybe. No, it's like it's supposed to be relatively straightforward, but also more complex. Love's also a little bit more complex than the way we think about it often in our culture. So that's the first thing I want to do is talk about 
what is love, give a definition of it. Um, and then I want to talk about how the love of God is in tension with the world, right? To point us toward the answer to this question of why the apostle of love is in exile and could have very easily lost his life just for preaching the gospel of love, for being the, the, the messenger. Apostle means messenger. He's the messenger of love. And yet they want to exile him. They want to kill his other apostles. So that's what we're going to do. Okay. Um, and uh, let's start with, um, with verse 3 in 1 John 5. So verse 3, we get a really helpful definition of love. And it's a little bit unexpected. It's not quite what you might think. John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So John's defining God, the love of God, and he's saying the love of God is to keep the commandments. And in doing that, John is actually um, just repeating Jesus' own teaching. Jesus said that the, the two highest commandments, the summary of the entire law, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That that's the law. That it's all about love. So love of God, commandments, it, these things fit together. This is Jesus teaching. Paul is taking it on too. And theologians have reflected on this idea for the past 2,000 years, and there's been sort of a dominant explanation for what love means and how to understand this dynamic at a slightly deeper level. And that is to, to look at love as, as care. To love something is to care about it. And even more deeply than that, love is about union, about union of heart. And by heart, what we mean in theology or in, in Christianity is we mean the, um, it's true in, in philosophical circles too, but heart means sort of the core of your being as an agent, right? So it's not just your intellect, it's not just your will, it's, 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 who, it's not just your emotions, it's all of that. It's the core, your direction, the core of who you are as a being with responsibility and agency who makes decisions. Um, and so love has been understood, trying to explain these very ideas that John is giving us here as union of heart, which expresses itself as care. You care about something. You're united to that thing. So take a simple example of this. Let's say you, uh, you get a puppy. I, I have a, a, a friend who recently got a puppy. Um, his kids talked him into it. And uh, I was asking him about it, and he said that every day of his life, that dog makes his life worse. <laughs> just every, every day. It's just, just horrible. Um, but, but you get that puppy, and you see it, and you choose it, and it's yours, and there's a union there. Your heart goes out to it, right? We use that phrase. The idea is that there's this connection. You feel like, okay, you are mine. I'm going to take care of you. And from that union come two things. Delight, you take pleasure in the beloved, the thing, the object of your love. There's delight, and then there's also benevolence. You want good for the thing you love. So this is love. It's about union, it's about delight and, delight and benevolence. What's really helpful about specifying love that way, caring about something, that's what we mean. Union, union leading to delight and benevolence. It helps us to see that because of that really straightforward definition of love, love is actually kind of complicated. And in our society, we sometimes have this one idea, oh, well, what is love? Who even knows what is love anyway? I don't even know what love is. Um, and then we also have this idea that all love is good. 
That if it's love, it's great. You can't criticize love. Anything someone loves is maybe defining of them or it's, it's you know, it, you can't question what someone loves. You have to praise all love. And um, theologians and philosophers and Christians throughout the ages have been much wiser than that. Because if love is about um, being united in heart to something, then the, whether the love is good or bad is going to depend on the object of the love and the nature of the love, right? How united are you to that thing? Think of that puppy. If you love that puppy, wait. Some people get obsessed with their dogs. They go overboard, and you all know this because this is DC, so you probably know like five people right now where you're like, yeah, they're way too close. And if you don't, it's probably you who are a little too obsessed with your dog. <laughs> um, but you can, but you can take it to the to the wrong place, right? You can care more about your dog. You can put if you put your dog before your kids, something's wrong. We had a dog named Juniper, and my dad would would try to he would he would be like, my, I have a sister named Gina, and he'd go, he'd be trying to call me to go, Gina, Juniper, Graydon. I'd be like, you just called me my sister and our dog before mine. Too much care about the dog, right? But but actually, but that, I mean that's silly. But actually, you can. Um, Elevate things that are less important over things that are more important. Maybe it's easier to see it with work. Right? You can put work before th relationships that matter more than the work. Right? It's very possible. Um, so what that means is that it's possible to have love that is ordered, that fits, that's responsive to the value of the actual, actual object, and that's respectful of it. And you can also have love that's disordered. You can, have lo you can love things wrongly. Um, the way the, uh, the famous Christian theologian Augustine put this is that good and bad loves make good and bad characters. Augustine said that love is our weight. By it we move. We become what we love. We're made into good people by loving rightly. We're made into uh, to twisted people by loving wrongly. Um, so God's love then to come back to this idea of God's love as the commandments God's love is a holy love it's a rightly ordered love and so when we experience God's love God's love it renovates or it changes our hearts again the center of our being our, our, the way we interact our, our, our core the way we interact with the world as agents and we see this in, this same, in these same verses. So go back to verse 1 with me in 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. God's love directs our hearts toward its proper objects. And we see this in the commandments themselves. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's a, that's a summary of the first part of the Ten Commandments. Right? You have no other gods before me, no idols, don't commit blasphemy, keep the Sabbath day holy. Those are all implications of what it would look like at really at a minimum level. Well, depending on how, I mean, if you, if you really take seriously what they're saying, it's not so minimal. But um, at, a, at a concise level, an explanation of the beginning of what it would look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And why would you do that? Because you need to recognize your place as a creature, right? So the fundamental um, posture of your heart 
should be humility toward God because you recognize your place as a creation and God is the creator. And if we're trying to impose our own vision of, of, um, of love and order and what peace should look like on the world, rather than looking for the reality outside of ourselves and responding to it, we're not acting with humility. We're misunderstanding our place in the world and our loves are going to necessarily be disordered. It's impossible to have rightly ordered loves if the most fundamental and important part of reality is God and you're not responding to him correctly. The one thing that your heart should be most united to that should shape everything about your life, you've denied and turned away from. How could the rest of everything possibly work out? How could it possibly work out? And then the second um, of these twin commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself, summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments. Right? So honor your father and mother. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. These are the, a concise and, and uh, brilliant summary of, I mean, brilliant, I mean, well, you know, God, God's smart. Um, <laughs> concise and brilliant summary of the implications of what it looks like to love your neighbor. And then, sticking in 1 John, just go to verse 3 with me, the second half of verse 3. I haven't read that part yet. It makes this interesting claim that uh, his commandments are not burdensome. Why wouldn't these commandments be burdensome? Now, if you read the Ten Commandments to undergraduates today, they would find some parts of them burdensome. Um, but John says they're not burdensome. Why would they not be burdensome? There's at least two reasons why they're not burdensome, and it helps us to see what it looks like for the love of God to be obedience to the commandments. Why wouldn't this be burdensome? Because, first of all, God's love, the love of God, truly changes our desires. So they become more rightly ordered. So we actually want the things that we're told to do. Right? What God commands, he gives power to, to accomplish by the Holy Spirit. And then also, they're not burdensome because they're beneficial. A burden is something that's working at odds with, with, with the direction of, of your own flourishing. And that's not what the commandments are like at all. We're creatures made in God's image. And the commandments are descriptions of what it looks like to live with love, to reflect the love of God. And so the, the fundamental command to human creatures, to human beings, is from Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. We're supposed to do what God does. To have respect to himself, which God has the highest respect to himself in all things that he does, uphold, creates for his glory and for the good of creatures. We're supposed to seek the glory of God and the good of creatures, right? We are supposed to be imitators of God because God is love. And this is the, the, the one line from 1 John that everyone in the world knows. God is love. We all know, everyone knows that. They don't know the rest of 1 John. They don't know the context. They don't know what they're talking about, but they know God is love. Why is God love? How does this make sense? Well, God is love because, think about love as union, right? Love is this union of hearts. The idea that God is love connects to the idea of God as Trinity and suggests that the, the fundamental reality on which everything else is built is the union between three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, that is so real that they are one being. It's perfect love is the foundation of reality, literally makes the world go round. That is the Christian doctrine that, you know, <laughs> the world spins because of gravity and all these different scientific laws. Those hold together because the foundation of reality is this God of love who holds things constant, who created and sustains. Now, 
There's another element to the sense in which God is love, though, and that's the sense that God responds to created value in a perfect way. We don't. Our loves are disordered all the time. But God responds perfectly. And sometimes the way God responds to our own value, the value that he created in us, can be terrifying. Um, I think there, there's, a, there's a recent Christian song, and lots of people knock recent Christian music because they think it's not profound. I think these lines are profound. It goes, he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. Right? God's recognition of your value is so high that those things that you're doing to disrespect yourself are offenses against God. You are incredibly valuable, more valuable than you can possibly dare imagine. And God loves you with a merciful love, meaning he loves you even more than justice demands, even more than your value demands. He loves you far more than that so much that he was willing to die to give his life to redeem you, to bring you back into relationship with himself, to redeem you from these twisted and disordered loves that you have. Now, if this is the love of God then, to obey the commandments, why is the love of God in tension with the world? And if it is, how can we emulate John and sort of live out love, recognizing this tension? I think an easy way to see this is um, going back to this line about God is love, right? This fundamental thing from 1 John. Everybody knows that one. But the other God is statement from 1 John is not as popular. You know what it is? The other God is from 1 John. He says it before he says God is love. It might even be more primary, and it shows up in his gospel too. God is light. And if you look at the context of what he says around when he says God is light, he says God is light and in, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if you read the rest of this context, this is 1 John 1, um, it's about sin. When he says God is light, what he means is that um, that darkness is sin and light is holiness and moral excellence and virtue and he's saying God is perfect morally. There is no sin, there is no darkness whatsoever in him. And we get these same exact emphases in the opening chapters of the gospel, the gospel of John. God is love, God is light. If we love God, we obey the commandments in imitation of God. The exact same emphases. If you reread those first, those famous opening chapters of John, you'll notice that they'll stand right out to you. And it culminates, those opening chapters, in this famous line that everybody memorizes. John 3.16. But after John 3.16 comes John 3.19-20. And this is where we see the tension between God, the love of God and the world and the explanation for it. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness. They love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Remember, darkness, sin, light, moral purity. Right? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. We can love darkness. In fact, we do regularly love darkness. And that's why when, um, when people make claims that you know, all loves are to be respected and what any, any love that you have that you feel is characteristic to you can be this thing that, that's fundamentally uh, identifying who you are and that no one can question, it's just a complete non-starter from a theological perspective because we know, and everyone who's ever been around a child knows, that we are born with destructive loves. 
We are filled with destructive, self-destructive, dangerous loves. Have you ever tried to, to, get ch- to move a child toward a good habit and seen how horrible their habits are and the things that they tend toward, habits of thought about themselves, habits of, of ways they treat other people, the, what they expect, other, how other people to treat them versus how they treat other people? the things that they think are healthy to do to, their, to, to eat, the things that they think are healthy to do with their bodies, how, how willing they are to sleep when they need to sleep. I mean, we have absolutely destructive desires that we're born with. We are made good and bad by good and bad loves, and we are fallen. We have bad loves. We need to be renovated. And so... If, if, if you're someone like the Apostle John, who defines himself in terms of his encounter with God's love, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple, meaning that that's who he is. He is, has been changed by his experience of God's love. You're going to find yourself at odds with people who have not had that experience. Because the things that, you're, that you say are worth loving and the things that you say should not be loved quite in the way or quite as much as the people around you that's, that's going to be completely opposed, or at least partially opposed, to the people around you, regardless of what culture you're in. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. There's always going to be that tension. Always, always, always. So how can we emulate John? We can emulate John, the apostle of love, by embracing the tension between the love of God and the world. And this is where he goes in verse 4. 1 John 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Overcome the world. And we want to look to overcome the world in at least two places. First, in the culture. Every culture has ideas about virtue and vice and good and evil and right and wrong. And you have to see that the ideas that the people have around you and that the culture has broadly are the most powerful thing in shaping people's actions. It's not the law of the state. It's not God's law. What people care about most when they go around to make decisions about how they ought to live is what the people that they respect and the circles that they're part of and the public voices that they care about, what those people say about virtue. We are social creatures. We care deeply about the, the, the opinions about right, wrong, good, and evil of the, of, the, of the people around us. But if every culture has, is made in God's image, and there's some good parts of it, but every culture is also made up of fallen people, there's going to be tension. There will necessarily be tension. Have you found that tension? Are you at odds with what people think is right? If you're not at odds with what people around you in your circle, what people around you in your neighborhood, in your school district, in your community, in your town, in your city, in your nation, if you're not at odds with what they think is right, you're probably not living out the love of God because there's got to be tension somewhere. You can, there's going to be some parts of affirmation, of course, but there's going to be some tension. John is, is extremely direct about this. Back in... in um, uh, actually, a couple of verses on, at the end of this chapter, 1 John 5, he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Reminds me of that children's song, This Little Light of Mine. This Little Light of Mine, that's not, like this, it's not just this cute little song. That's actually a, a call to struggle 
against the forces that resist God and resist the love of God and try to substitute for it a disordered love that you call right and that you celebrate. But there's also another place where we need to, to struggle to overcome the world, and that's inside of the self. And that's probably even more important. Maybe it's definitely even more important. Because the battle lines between light and darkness run right through the human heart. Sanctification, the process of having our loves transformed to be, to be, the, to be characterized by the love of God, is a process. That's why John says early in his letter that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what sins do you need to confess? You probably know. It's probably not that hard to figure out what sins you're holding on to that you haven't really told anyone about yet. The people around you probably know about them but you haven't confessed them. Maybe you have some secret ones that people don't know about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That cleanse part is incredibly powerful because normally the way it works for human beings is that we're born with these destructive habits or these destructive loves as children. They grow into habits, some of them better, some of them worse, but then we're trapped by them and we can't get out of our habits. And so we can either fight against our habits and then we feel like we're repressed and horrible and we start, and it's like, I can't, I can't, this is, I just want this so bad. I can't fight against it. How do I, how do I get away from this desire, from this, this thing that's built up? So then if you're, if you eventually, you don't want to fight against it. You start reading Freud or something. You think, oh, I should just embrace this. Maybe it is actually good. I've been feeling ashamed about it, but maybe it's actually good. And the whole re and other people are telling me it's wrong, but that's not true. Whatever it is, whether it's alcohol or whatever it is that you're, that you thought was this thing that you should, that you initially tried to push away, then you start embracing it. Because you're trapped by your habits, you don't know what to do. Jesus saw us, he saw people and he, was, he, was, he felt bad for them. He was like, a, they said, they're like shepherds without a sheep. We're trapped. But here's the promise. Not only forgiveness, but cleansing from all unrighteousness. This renovation of the heart, rebirth, rebirth. Those who are born of God overcome the world. So, what do you, uh, where is the darkness in you? What do you love more than you ought to love? What do you love less than you ought to love? What gets more of your attention than it should? What gets less of your schedule than it should? How can we be like the beloved disciple? You know, there's this one image of John that's the most famous, and I want to end with this image. I want you to keep this image in mind as you, as you go about your day. Um, it's of the Last Supper, which you've probably seen. How, how many pictures of the Last Supper have you seen, right? Well, John is the one, there's a disciple in the Last Supper who's kind of leaning on Jesus. It's talked about in the Gospels that um, you know, the beloved disciple, in John's gospel, he talks about how the beloved disciple was, was reclining on Jesus, kind of like leaning on him, you know, sort of like resting, you know, um, on his shoulder, just leaning up against his shoulder. Um, there's John allowing Jesus to support his weight, resting his weight upon Jesus. And that... Um, that experience that John had of resting on Jesus, of allowing Jesus to carry him, allowing Jesus to support him, not pick him up, but to support him. Um, 
John wants that same thing for everyone he's writing to, and he repeats it again and again and again, this particular Johannine word, abide. He says abide, 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 abide in him. He's constantly talking about abiding in him. I'm going to give just one example of this and end on it. 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We pray that you would change our hearts and help us to love as we ought. Forgive us for the ways that we fall so far short of what we are created to be and what we should be. Um, rescue us from the, uh, the chains of habit and form in us um, virtuous, good habits and uh, give a, fill us with love and help us to carry out um, good works in this world, Lord, and, and to be better people than we are today, not in order to prove ourselves to you, but only in response to your incredible love for us, knowing that your law and your love is what is good for us. In Jesus' name, amen.